Hey y'all, Scott Beeson here with Alabama Unfiltered. Just kidding, it's absolutely not. Brian Dawson filling in for Scott Beeson on Alabama Unfiltered this week. And again, Attorney General Steve Marshall coming in to do some stuff with 1819 News, this time on the Alabama Unfiltered podcast. Really, really great episode. We jump into transgender issues, human trafficking, and the pistol brace issue coming down from the ATF. You're not going to want to miss out on that. And then also for the behind the scenes content, we've got questions from around Alabama for our attorney general. We're literally debating that it's bad that people get to say what they think. Can you imagine? I'm reading Psalm 144 and it says, he trains my hands for war. We are on the brink of total destruction of America as we know it. Let your rebel flag fly. Welcome everyone to Alabama Unfiltered. Okay, I'm obviously not Scott Beeson. I could try a Southern accent and say, hey, welcome on in y'all. I'm Scott Beeson. I'm here with my co-hosts and I forgot their names. And so I got them written down right here with Amy Beth Shaver and Allison Sinclair. But Amy Beth Shaver is not here either. I've got Allison and we've got Steve Marshall. And we've got a great show coming up. But before we jump into this incredible content, um, we got to ask you guys, join the fight. What does it mean to join the fight? Well, we need you guys to financially support the work we're doing uh, as we do deep dive investigative journalism. Some of the stuff you guys might have saw on Mac McCutcheon that came out this week. Really good stuff. Um, but, you know, to do that, it, it takes money and it takes support. And so uh, as we inform the people of Alabama, investigate corruption and celebrate the things that are good, true and beautiful about the state, um, we need you guys to jump in and support that work. So we're asking you guys to do that. Those levels start out at $5 or you can give uh, as much as you felt led. So please go on and do that. We've now got a button at the top of the page on mobile and desktop where it just says membership. Click that membership button, select which level you want to give at uh, and and do that. And so apparently Alabama Unfiltered's not as cool as 1819 News the podcast because they haven't been kicked off of YouTube yet and I have. Okay. So, but still, even though you can get it on YouTube, you need to develop habits to go somewhere else to get the podcast because it's a matter of time before the YouTube Gestapo says no more with Alabama Unfiltered. So Rumble, it's a great place to get it. Uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, we're set up on these podcasting platforms just like Joe Rogan, where there's a video version of the podcast on these podcast platforms. So Create new habits. I know YouTube's really easy. Everybody's got the app and we just click it, but try and create new habits to get the podcast on platforms that don't censor the truth. Um, so yeah, there's that. Well, we are going to um, jump in to our interview with Steve Marshall. I've got Allison Sinclair here. I'd say thanks for joining me, but I guess I'm joining you. You, Yes. And you just didn't so want to I do need the you host to be thing. super professional and together today. Cause yeah, because that's Alabama Unfiltered in a nutshell, right? Podcast. Yeah, <laughs> very, yes. very serious. All right. Well, Attorney General Steve Marshall, good to see you again. Good to be like. here. By the way, I'm not you know, equating the, uh, the the efforts of YouTube to take you off within a month of me being on your podcast. Yes. So obviously, we spoke. <laughs> Too much truth to fact, right? I mean, in the what was yeah. going on, but I think you've joined some really good company. We recently uh, had uh, hosted Heather McDonald, who I think is one of the foremost criminal justice policy experts in the country, to speak to several about kind of what is going on nationally and, and to share pretty transparently about kind of what criminal statistics are and what they mean and and where the the left is distorting those. 
she has joined you in being banned from YouTube. So the, there's lots of good people. Yes. That, it would make, make for a great party, wouldn't it? And Everybody that's been banned come together and yeah. share their stories. Well, we should definitely do Rumble advertising together. Yes. Right? Tell everybody about Rumble. We're going to start doing that probably for free on our website. Everyone go download Rumble. So, you know, that is good. And, and hopefully, I guess there's some maybe some justice coming or maybe it's just a dog and pony show. But Jim Jordan summoning mm. or uh, subpoena. There it is subpoenaing all the, the heads of these uh, tech companies. Cause when, when Elon bought Twitter and just exposed everything that was going on, he's like, if you think this was only happening at Twitter, you're crazy. Right. And, and, and guaranteed the same stuff's going on. Facebook is completely shadow banned us. We were going from, you know, we would write a decent story that we knew you can kind of know which ones are going to get traction. It's not foolproof, but you know, we'd get two, 300 likes on a story. Now we get two or three. Right. And so it's like, Hmm, yeah. we upset. The, the Facebook Gestapo as well. So, you know, in law enforcement, we call that a clue. Yeah. You know, that's kind of where yeah. that comes from. But, you know, and it's one of those things that, you know, we talked last time a lot about yeah. kind of the role of the attorney general and yeah. what we get a chance to do and where we are. And this is public knowledge, but, you know, there's um, significant investigation going on surrounding social media as a whole. Yeah. Kind of how they operate, what they do, and particularly as it involves conservative voices. And so really interested to see kind of what ultimately transpires from that. But now that, you know, we do have a house that has the ability to subpoena and, and conduct their own investigations and hearings, I think we're going to hear some interesting things moving forward yeah. in the next several months. And I hope something happens because they always do those big, you know, judiciary, you know, subpoenings and they yell at them and they get really round and Ted Cruz takes his boot off and says, you see that, you know, and then nothing happens, nothing happens. and then nothing happens. So, Hopefully there's some teeth behind the the bark and the bite uh, this time. I, I feel like there's a lot of good momentum coming in this area. Um, and, and man, that's it. I don't, I don't want any advantage with Facebook. I don't want any tipping of the table. I just want a level playing field because I feel like the message that we created 1819 news absolutely resonates with the people. And if they would just take off the barriers, you know, and again, we're already exploding everywhere without Facebook, without YouTube and all this other stuff. Um, you know, we've got a massive newsletter reach that grows by thousands every month and we get, I think like a 40 or 50% open rate on our newsletter. So we have 10,000 people minimum every morning waking up in Alabama reading our newsletter. So, but it, isn't that also a reflection of the appetite for the people of Alabama to really have news? Yeah. I mean, and stuff that they know is either not funded by a grant. Yeah. It's not, you know, dictated by outside sort of sources of funding, yeah. but really is about what's going on. And, and, and look, and, and I'll say as somebody who sits in a little different role than, than obviously y'all do, you know, the fact that you're writing about what we're doing and it could be positive or it could be negative. I mean, it could be yeah. critical. That's kind of what it's about. Yeah. And, and look, my wife doesn't appreciate everything I do. And that means he still loves me. But the fact that y'all are basically reporting what's going on, and, and, and look, and, I, and I'll tell you a specific example. The fact that 1819 was in the courtroom for us in a hearing a week and a half ago on our case uh, defending a law that is keeping children from being experimented upon mm. relating to, to transgender issues. And I didn't see any other media outlet there because, you know, I don't know if you saw that, you know, contributors to the New York Times protesting this week, they're saying that, that they are uh, too far to the right on those specific issues. And it's because they're reporting the stories of the failed experiment in Europe, yeah. what's going on across our country, the, the new whistleblower in Missouri. And yet 
I think it's a significant story. And, I, and if you ask me what's kind of one of the top three things for me personally, where I'm investing my time, where I'm engaged with staff, it's around that case and around that issue nationally. In fact, I was just uh, privileged to serve as chair of the Republican AGs right now, which means I get to dictate a little bit of the direction of where we are as a policy mm. with speaking to a large group that were gathered the other night and saying that one of the things that you give us the privilege of do, to do is to protect our kids. That was the first thing out of my mouth because that really is that priority for me. But yet nobody else is reporting that story. Yeah. Nobody else has been diving into, you know, the the narrative of what's going on in this city from certain physicians leading that charge. But y'all are. Yeah. And, and and I think again, I sound like a champion for I'm gonna be a paid political right. advertiser, right? Yeah. No, but it's it's like it's there, and and it's something that, that y'all are filling what was clearly a void. And, and again, I don't expect you to favorably report on what Steve Marshall's doing. Yeah. I just want you to be able to tell the people what's going on. Yeah, And, and they, can, it, they can make that choice about whether or not I, in the role of attorney general, or a governor, or a lieutenant governor, or a legislature, or whatever it may be, how are we being responsive to the will of the people. Yeah. And we, we again, had this discussion the other day. I got criticized about a uh, inauguration speech where I just really laid it out there where I think I am and where I'm going and what I'm going to do. God forbid we're transparent, right, yeah. the, about that. Um, but, you know, if we truly are a republic and we value a republic because we are responsive to the will of the people, the role of the press is critical. Yeah. Well, to be able to highlight that. That's the thing that I've always loved about Brian. And when I came on and we were just starting is that he was like, I, I don't care what side of the aisle it falls on. We're going to report the truth, yeah. you know, to tell the truth is on all of our cups and, and that's it. You know, we're not here to, you know, be a champion for any one person or legislator. It's just to tell the truth. And it's funny because today NBC put out that um, surprise natural immunity to COVID is um, higher or possibly more antibodies more, than the vaccine. Yes, than the vaccine. That would have gotten you kicked off YouTube six months ago. No, no, no. It got us kicked off YouTube. <laughs> okay. It got it, us well, no. Off, yeah. <laughs> General Marshall may have gotten oh, okay. you kicked yeah. off YouTube. But, yeah. you know, that's, that's the thing. You've got to be willing to put yourself out there and say the hard things that are the truth. And what yeah. you're doing with transgender and sports. And I kind of want to talk about um, you signing on with the other, I think it was 22 attorney generals. Attorneys general. Attorneys general. Yeah, it's not always yeah. easy to yeah. get that I'm, one right. Just, Attorney, you know, wait. Attorneys. It is general. attorneys general. You're not. You're not generals. No, attorneys. It's general, as in not like four stars. It's general, like generally they're attorneys. So why do so we? But then I call you General Steve Marshall. Yes, I mean, I'm sure. He, I, if you called me General say, Brian, I wasn't gonna wouldn't say anything <laughs> either. You don't have to. <laughs> I will not. Okay. Okay, but hold on. Okay, we'll we'll circle back to that. Yeah. Circle back. I was going with the DeSantis law right. and protecting girls' sports. And um, was that kind of something that you led in as head of the attorneys general Republican? You know, it's we have the ability to basically leverage the resources of AG's offices across the country. By the way, just say AG. See, that's easier to say. You said AG. Um, it's so confusing. Engineers with grammar. I, mean, I don't know why we're doing this. Actually, English was my uh, worst subject. So, but really? you know, we we each have the ability to sort of say we're going to dedicate resources around an issue that we care about, 
Um, but we also have the ability to trust other offices because there's remarkable talent in AG's offices across the country because you're able to recruit lawyers that can't do this work anywhere else that really care about it. And so it's, it's one of the things that's been the most rewarding to me about the talent I get a chance to work with. It's amazing. Um, but, you know, number one, we were pleased to lead the brief. We, we did in, in 20, 21 other states joined us. So it was 22 total. Um, but also if, you know, you look to kind of where Alabama's positioned itself on things as a result of kind of where I'm coming from, you know, that's one of those issues that, that we're going to engage. You know, we led sort of the fight relating to single-sex bathrooms. You know, we have fought, you know, this effort from the Department of Education to really change the definition of sex and move to gender identity. And so you've seen multiple areas for us where that's been an area we've taken leadership. You know, West Virginia right now, very much energy-specific. You know, you're going to see them. My good friend in Montana is taking the lead on many of the Second Amendment issues. So that one of the things that we are able to do when we sort of capture an issue is develop specific expertise too. And so that we're not reinventing the wheel every time that a brief comes around. But one of the things that that you see us do is to support the efforts of AGs in other states or governors in other states around laws that are consistent with what we have here. For example, we – led a brief for South Carolina involving their redistricting case. Y'all are obviously aware of the fight that we have right now at the Supreme Court and what we're doing with Alabama's congressional districts. And the law in Florida, very similar to the one that we have here. And so not only is it important for us as an office and for me to lead an office consistent with my principles, that this is an issue that we want to be engaged in. It's also our ability to be able to, within the 11th Circuit, where we sit um, as a state, to support a law with reasoning that likewise would allow us to defend ours. And so, you know, we, we're thoughtful about those issues that we truly take the leadership in. Uh, and this is one that, I mean, it just, and it's also just makes common sense, right? Yeah. I, I mean, that's what's like so amazing about it. We're going to look back in a hundred years and be like, okay, this generation was probably the dumbest. Like, I think we're going to look ever. back and feel so stupid but, and it depends how you break it down. I and again, I'm I come from kind of a spiritual point of view. Like this is a, a spiritual blindness, like a turning over that you see in Romans one, a wickedness on the land that could. On, that's the only thing that could produce what we're seeing with wanting to. Obviously, you look at abortion. That's that's a horrible thing in and of itself. But now, you know, post term abort- abortions, mutilating children's genitals, like. It just goes and goes and goes. And and to me, I don't think it's like, wow, they're dumb. Those millennials like to, you know, I don't I don't think that's the issue. I think it's a I think it's a spiritual issue that we're dealing with, and it's a spiritual blindness that's come from an apostate nation. But we'll save that for another podcast. <laughs> like I was walking yeah. through the airport I was in recently and it had the the bathroom signs, the the male, the female, and then the Do they have one for furries? No, but I'm I'm thinking it's coming because then it was the the male with the with the dress, like half and half, and I'm like, someday somebody's gonna find one of these signs buried in you know underground and be like, who are these people? Like, what in the world? Yeah. And that's us. It's so. And it'll be like Sodom and Gomorrah, the same things that they find there. They'll be like, what is this yeah. sulfur? And we know what happened right yeah. by the sign. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you know, it's interesting. Sort of this global fight is one that you know when I'm out seeing folks. They ask me about it a lot. It's like, why are we, why are we in the middle of this? And so, y'all probably didn't pay attention to it. No reason to. But several years ago, we led the fight 
when there was the effort, sort of the three straight three state strategy to have the ERA ratified to the Constitution. You know, this goes back to 1972. Remember, you know, all that, and then when Virginia passed theirs, you know, we fought to. This was during the Trump administration to make sure it wasn't certified. And the reason why is. If you recall that that amendment was saying we're we're going to have equality among members of the same sex or of sexes, and that was the specific word. During the seventies, there was no issue about what that meant. Right. But to the extent that became a part of the Constitution, now could you imagine how that would be weaponized? You know, right now we've got the Biden administration trying to use all the tools kind of in their toolbox, whether it be. You know, the funding of school lunch programs, the changing of definitions with the Department of Education, you know, the the issues that we have now with DOJ coming in and battling us on these things. But if they had a constitutional amendment, and so it was interesting, I couldn't even get the support of very many of my Republican colleagues, let alone a majority, like the 22 on this brief. There were three of us that came and said, we're going to push back on this. And, and by the way, I don't know if you all know that we have an archivist that works in DC that is supposedly the, 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 the marshal of the constitution. That's who we had to sue. Um, but literally that may be one of the most significant wins I have as attorney general is keeping the ERA out of the constitution because while we're sort of dealing right now and the reason why sort of this, the gender identity effort of the Biden administration is somewhat weaponized now is because of the Bostock decision that came out from the Supreme Court a few years ago that Justice Gorsuch wrote. You know, it was kind of this battle of what is originalism within the court where he allowed for there to be employment protection for transgender under the definition of that act. And so if, in fact, the ERA had become a part of the Constitution, I mean, we would be in a very, very different place. And that case is still pending, by the way. It's in front of the D.C. Circuit, so we still have to win it. I think we're going to for a variety of reasons. But yet it is just reflective, though, of the fact that when I walked into this job six years ago, basically, um, in 2017, even then this wasn't the battle that it is right now. But for this administration, I mean, I truly have this sense of – the the Biden administration gathering all these old Obama operatives and saying we didn't do enough in our eight years we got four years now let's be active and so that's been on the climate change agenda it's been on gender ideology it's been pushing back against the pro life side and again using and leveraging He's one of us all the yeah. tools in the toolbox and particularly federal money because this is the thing that and by the way am I just talking too much no, no, no I love no, it I'm no, just no, no. like really excited because no. I'm like this is no, but, but, this is so refreshing to hear but we don't think about you know when you take federal money it comes with strings right time. and and so let's let's go back to the the covid fight that we had the only reason why the federal government could argue for the vaccine mandate on the healthcare side is because they're paying Medicaid and Medicare services. That ultimately became the linchpin for how they succeeded. The only way they could do it with many large employers was under this federal contracting provision that basically said, we're going to be able to put it in there because we're going to pay you for goods or services. So we're going to dictate healthcare policy in your state on that front. That on the OSHA side of the house, they were using that vehicle of the safety in a workplace to leverage it in a way that we've never seen in this country. They're using, and I mentioned the school lunch program, you know, if you want to have your school lunch program, oh, by the way, you're going to have to identify discrimination on the transgender side. 
if we're taking federal money, we have to acknowledge that that there is risk there. And even, you know, one of the, the, the good victories that we've had is relating to the ARPA money, which is ultimately going to bankrupt, you know, our kids for paying for all the money coming in. But remember, there was that provision that went along with it that said, yeah, we're going to give you these billions of dollars, but you can't reduce directly or indirectly the taxes on your citizens for a three-year period. Now, by the way, tell me an indirect tax. Yeah. I don't know what that is. I always know it's out of pocket, but you know, we won that here in Birmingham. We said, okay, we'll take your money, but you can't dictate the spending and taxing policy of a state. That's the, the yeah. domain of the state. Got a really good decision from Judge Cougar that's been affirmed. But, but again, it's part of my discussion with legislators is it's great to say we want all this federal money, but understand there's risk involved with that. And do you really want to do it? And do you need that? Yeah. Or are you just creating a bureaucracy without the benefit down the road? So that we talked about this on our um, last podcast that just came out yesterday is that the Tennessee Speaker of the House is introducing a bill to totally deny taking any federal funding for education anymore. And I wish Alabama would have that discussion. Yeah, I would prefer that over a $6,500 ESA per child is just, just stop taking the federal money and it'll probably work itself out. Well, because, you know, I get messages from teachers all the time talking about how, you know, the system that they're working in, they can't, the kids aren't learning, they can't discipline, they can't mm -hmm. handle the classroom anymore and they're frustrated it all goes back to that federal funding and the strings that are attached to it. So take that out. I don't know if, if we have the gumption to support something like that, but I love that that discussion and then Barry Moore that came out, you know, recently with abolishing the department of education at the federal level, I'm like, this should have been done. These talks need to happen more. And so I'm glad to hear you kind of talking about this issue that I think we think that it's been like this forever but it really hasn't. Department mm -hmm. of Education didn't come into fruition until 1980. There are some of us in this room that were in school before 1980. Well, I'm the oldest here, so <laughs> I can go ahead and tell you that. Um, you know, and we think it's like goes back to 1890, whatever. It doesn't. It doesn't have to be like this. Yeah. No, we do then, have an option. And, let's, and it's beyond just money. I mean, the, the fact that this administration has weaponized multiple departments around the left's agenda because they can't get it through Congress. And so right. I'll give you a totally different example. You know, we, we had a limited discussion about ESG and we really ought to dive into that longer here. Yeah. But the, the most recent example of the litigation is, you know, we got 152 million Americans with over $12 trillion in assets in their retirement accounts. You know, what's the single thing that if you're an investment manager, you ought to be worried about? And that's the return for those individuals, hard-earned dollars that they want for their retirement. Well, we now have the Department of Labor issue a rule that says, all right, investment managers, if you choose to invest in ESG investments, which, by, by the way, occurs without, you know, consultation to that 152 right. million Americans, we're going to give you immunity from liability if those ESG investments don't perform as well as non-ESG investments. You know, they call it a safe harbor rule. Well, that's insane. If, if non-pecuniary interests dictate how that money is invested, they don't worry about what is the return for the individual being the paramount factor, then again, 
all we've done is give the left another example to change policy, to be able to change the structure that's going on within corporate America to push this woke agenda. And now we're going to insulate him from liability. And so, again, all because right now elections matter. We have an administration that is pushing that agenda and they are allowing for agencies to be able to do it. And it's why, you know, we describe ourselves and I think it's appropriate the AGs is kind of the last line of defense because, you know, Congress, unless they weigh in to change it, doesn't impact it. That if it's not for attorneys general filing these lawsuits that ultimately stop it, then there really is no other party to be able to do it. And it's why, you know, it's a unique privilege to be able to do what I do because, you know, it's not that we're just simply saying we don't like the policy. But we're also being able to look at the federal government and saying you are exceeding your reach, yeah. that you are not only either violating the Constitution, but you're violating the laws that we have in our in our country. And at least we have the ability to be that voice. Now, I don't think that my job is like Greg Abbott, that he described it when he was back. You know, he used to be the attorney general of, of Texas during the Obama administration. They asked him, hey, what's the job like at the AG? And he says, I come to work. I see the Obama administration. I go home. Now, it's not quite like that but yet Sometimes there seems like is a lot of it and you know again as i talk to people around the state they kind of expect two things of me one let's talk about public safety that's why i've been so adamant about this early release program yeah um victims need to have a voice law enforcement needs to have a voice but the other thing is they're saying is liberty has to matter yeah and 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 there is something called the 10th amendment that deals with the sovereignty of the state to dictate the actions in its state. And when the federal government goes too far, we need you to step into those yeah. those shoes. And so, you know, we've had a lot of good success on that front, but still got lots more to do. That's awesome. Well, um, we have to hit a commercial break. We shall do that and go to our great sponsor, Centurion Labs, and we'll be right back. What's up, guys? Brian Dawson, CEO of 1819 News here. I want to take a minute to tell you about my good friends over at Centurion Labs. Cold weather is here, and you know what that means. Colds, the flu, and coronaviruses are running rampant. Your immune system needs protection, and that's why I love what my friends over at Centurion Labs are doing. They're always looking for safe, effective, affordable ways to keep you healthy and at your best. Got a cough, sore throat, or a runny nose? You need to check out their Ninja Cough product. You heard me, Ninja Cough. It contains the strongest non-narcotic cough suppressant on the market with no sugar, alcohol, or dyes. So it's safe for everyone, even your kids. Looking to strengthen your immune health, prevent sickness, or fight off the flu, and of course, coronaviruses? Defender Immunity Boost is for you. It is an all-in-one immunity booster that combines vitamin C, vitamin D, zinc, copper, and quercetin in just one pill to save you money and help defend your health. Having trouble sleeping? Defender PM is a nighttime immunity booster that will help you get rest and boost your immune health. Now is the time to defend your health, save money, and support a company that shares your Christian values and loves this country. Centurion has dedicated the last 15 years to research and develop safe, effective, and affordable products made in the USA that you can trust. For a limited time, listeners of this podcast can get 20% off their first bottle order when you visit centurionlabs.com forward slash 1819news and use the promo code 1819. That's centurionlabs.com forward slash 1819news with the promo code 
1819. Check them out, guys. All right, everybody, welcome back. Before we jump into the content, I do want to say a few words about our sponsor, uh, Centurion Labs. They they do great work. They were ahead of the curve with the COVID stuff. Um, you know, when there was a lot of different interesting treatments that were being experimented, one of the things that was just a common theme was vitamin C, vitamin D, zinc, and quercetin. And you know, their products that, that are COVID related, uh, I think Defender is the product they have that has that stuff in it. First time I got COVID, I took Defender, uh, and there's no doubt that it helped me get through it rather quickly. I also took Ivermectin, but that's neither here nor there. Horse paste or whatever. Now we're really off YouTube. Yeah. That's oh, it. Oh, yeah. Oops, I did it. <laughs> Had to bring me on to get kicked off YouTube. Yeah. It's the beard. But anyway, um, definitely go check that out. Um, you know, we are kind of coming on the back end of cold and flu season, but it seems like that doesn't even exist anymore. It's like one giant cold flu season always. So keep uh, Centurion Defender and their other products in your medicine cabinet so that you're always ready. All right, next segment. Here we go. We've got limited time. Um, let's talk about uh, human trafficking. I think that's a, a something I definitely wanted to talk about last time you were on. It's an important subject. You hear about it. Um, what What is human trafficking? Is it the same thing as prostitution or is it different? It's like the language kind of changed. Um, is it a problem in Alabama really? Um, and and again, I, I, I think so, but I'm kind of posing the question journalistically. Is, is it really a problem? So Talk about um, what it is, is it happening in Alabama, and what you guys are doing about it. Yeah, a couple things. You know, human trafficking generally gets associated with sex trafficking, but let's also remember labor trafficking. Yeah. So you have both of those. There's a little different legal standard ultimately in the criminal proof, um, but you have both, and I think that's yeah. something that gets lost a little bit in, in the discussion. Um, you know, It is a crime, frankly, that I think that we're still learning more about. And yeah. I don't mean necessarily – um, in the frequency in which it occurs, but also really more of the dynamic that is going into this taking place. And I'll give you the example is that I think most folks think about it in, in around pimps and johns and those that are, yeah. you know, using prostitution. Um, and so we really think of that victim being associated with somebody that's there for the compensation. But one of the things that we're learning from the research is the familial connection. You know, most of the time, for example, and, you know, again, as a guy that sort of still considers himself a prosecutor, that's kind of why I like to think of myself as. Um, I did child physical and sexual abuse cases for years. And typically the offender was going to know the victim. I mean, that's just, it wasn't usually a total stranger. And um, we're learning now that that's kind of, similarly true in the area of human trafficking and, and why it was a little bit of an aha moment. We just had the conference down in Montgomery where we brought a lot of the adv advocates together, uh, nonprofits doing work, you know, the junior league, for example, Birmingham's really strong here. Um, but I was having a discussion with one of the national researchers and she was talking about this subject and one that they're really learning more about. And I think the, the first case that I ever handled as a prosecutor, one of the most notorious, it was, a mother taking two girls, one of which was her own, the other which was the best friend of the little girl, to the offender to be sexually abused and to be photographed uh, in that setting. And um, by the way, just crazy case. And I mean, signs in the yards, this guy was like, you know, the other thing about offenders here is they're typically not what people think of. I mean, they're usually educated 
They are gamefully employed. You know, they're not. So that, that was, you could identify them when you were in prison. The people that looked normal were the child molesters. Yeah. The and ones that, that had nice clean cut hair and looked like they were an attorney. Like you just knew, oh, that guy's a child molester. No, uh, no yeah. hey. Well, I, no, I, I mean, understand. he's not in prison. So. Yeah. But, yeah. but it was, um, I mean, there were public signs like this gentleman was innocent and because they just never would have expected what yeah. we learned behind the scenes. And so good investigation work. But I say all that to be able to say, you know, this was a circumstance not too atypical from the one I described for your own child physical and sexual abuse occurring because that's human trafficking there. The mother was being paid for those children to be sexually abused by the offender. And so I think that's an area just from the standpoint of awareness for law enforcement and the work that we're trying to do is important. But there's really kind of a, a couple of avenues for us. Is it kind of when I walked in, I think day one, I said this was one of our four priority areas. And one of the things that there's a lot of well-meaning people around the, 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 the human trafficking issue, but there was frankly not a ton of coordination and felt like training was still lacking. And, you know, it's one of those things that if it's an area of emphasis, we typically have arrests. When it's not an area of emphasis, we don't see it. And so, for example, and I'll use Tuscaloosa as an example, we had a really passionate investigator there uh, who did great work, and there were lots of arrests in Tuscaloosa, and the public would go, oh, my gosh, it's such a problem in Tuscaloosa. And my response to that is, no, we just were proactive in being able to investigate it in that area. It's just like if if I was a police chief and just want to be really disingenuous about drugs, for example, I just wouldn't investigate drugs because if I don't make arrests, people can't say I have a problem. If I'm aggressive about it and make a bunch of arrests, people go, Oh, we got the big drug problem. Yeah. So anyway, so it's one of those, one of those things there. But when, when you yeah. look at Alabama, um, the interstate system itself right. is that kind of roadmap for figuring out where the issues may be. And the reason why this is such a difficult area is number one, the victims themselves usually have kind of significant issues coming in. They may end up being subject to addiction. You know, many times, and this sounds strange, they are loyal to the core to the offender. Right. Because that person typically is providing their financial resources, they're providing their housing, and may be like that person loves them. You know, it's not, again, atypical to that description I gave you earlier about the, the, the child victim. Many times children don't report because it's a loved one doing it. I think that that's kind of normal and they don't disclose. And so, so one of the problems that you have in a prosecution is that many times your victims aren't cooperative. The other is that they're typically incredibly transient. And mm-hmm. so while we have like, for example, the Wellhouse, which is an amazing place and resource we have in Alabama that cares for victims of human trafficking, you know, one of the difficulties we have is just being able to convince a victim to stay with us during the course of prosecution. You know, one of the hurdles you always have is many times your human trafficking victims are very suspicious of law enforcement. They may have had their own interactions in the past that, you know, cause them to be that way. And then when you're attempting to engage, when they typically have no connection to the geographic area where you're, you know, you're located, then it's really tough to be able to keep them around. And absent that victim, you really don't have much of a case. And so part of what we've attempted to do is to, to create through what we call the, the alliance is really this coalition of nonprofits and of law enforcement and prosecutors groups that are sharing information and talking. The other thing that was also important is um, to 
cultivate kind of non-traditional law enforcement partners. And when I say this, I think it's going to make sense to you, but it wouldn't initially to me. And so, uh, yeah, but the trucking association, Absolutely. because around truck stops and the trucking industry, there's inherently some of the issue of prostitution. And so one of the largest trainings that we've actually hosted at our office um, was with truckers against trafficking and where we brought individuals who had no connection to law enforcement. They were owners of truck stops, those that were in trucking companies and in the trucking industry to come together and let's say, let's give you indicators because look, I'm not saying that it's because truck drivers are our major offenders, right. but they are opportunities for information for law enforcement and leads so that if we could give the truckers an opportunity to understand, here's what you look for here's what's suspicious and here's what we need you to report, then it creates a greater opportunity for us to be able to do our jobs. Because the reality is, you know, violent crime we know about because somebody's going to report it. This is not a crime that gets reported. It's just like some of the difficulty a little bit with domestic violence is mm -hmm. because it was in that culture of silence. This is even more so that way for the reasons I was kind of describing why these victims are unique. And so if we could cultivate non-traditional sources of information to law enforcement, then it gives us the better ability to be able to do our jobs. And so one of the things um, that we were able to do at, at our office uh, through a grant is to hire personnel to help us, a dedicated investigator working in these cases. Um, Chris Lynn, uh, who is phenomenal, worked in multiple law enforcement and in this world to help us kind of begin to develop a, a long-term strategy in Alabama. Um, but I think uniquely the issue is, and particularly when I came on board, you had lots of folks that, you know, we had a coalition here, we had a task force here, all well-meaning and, and trying to do good things, but there just was a lack of coordination. And so we're trying to kind of put our arms around that and see, as I've sort of told the team, you gain credibility when you put bad guys in jail. I mean, that's yeah. one of the things that we have to be able to do. And so those prosecutions are critically important. Number one, to develop credibility with the victims community, um, but also that we show that there are tangible results of what we're trying to do. I mean, there's been opportunities where we've been able to refer victims into shelter, which is a big win, yeah. uh, and to convince them to get out. We may not be able to prove the crime, but we at least have gotten them out into the shelter. And uh, so those are, are things that, you know, the public's not going to know about, but, but internally we know. But it is um, an issue that, that we got to continue to work on. The other thing, and I'll, I'll, I know I've talked too long, you're, you're but is um, Alabama's laws have gotten a lot better. Um, you know, several years ago when Alabama was raided, we just didn't have the good laws on the books. The legislature's given us now a good opportunity. I do think we need to change a little bit on the labor trafficking because we require proof of coercion or force. Mm. That's not an easy thing to prove. And, you know, that's one of the limiters that we have that they don't have on the federal side. Um, and so if we've got the laws on the books, then now we got to do a good job on this side, the investigation, the prosecution and the victim services to be able to do it. But I can tell you there's a lot of passionate people in the state there's a lot of people working around this issue. It's here, and we need to recognize it. You know, one of the things about the World Games, and we can talk a lot about yeah. the impact of the World wow. Games, but I tell yeah. you one of the positive things. There's a lack things, of impact. Yeah, one of the positive <laughs> things is that there was um, a group who was singularly focused on this question of human trafficking during that period of time. 
But what that uniquely caused and forced is people to talk to one another that maybe hadn't done so before. And the good thing is that we had federal partners in with state law enforcement in with prosecutors having discussions that maybe we didn't have before and needed to have. And so one of the, at least the positive benefits from that experience is we've cultivated relationships and trust among folks that previously hadn't worked together before. Yeah. So what is the, I, I don't know what the, the, the punishment per se is, is, is human trafficking, sex trafficking. Is that a punishment, a capital offense? No. No, no, no. Would that be something to pursue legislatively? I mean, you could. Now, you know, there may be some limiters on the federal side about whether or not that could take place. Um, but, you know, in Alabama, capital offenses are, are limited to, I think, 14 categories of murder. Um, but I do think that, and I'd have to go back and look and confirm, but I do think that the highest level on the trafficking side is a Class A. Yeah. Um, and so we, we, we have the ability there. Um, to be able to have the right level of punishment. Um, although, me, by the way, those human traffickers will likewise be eligible for mandatory early release under the 2021 law. But anyway, yeah. another story for another day. Yeah. I digress. But well, actually, it, it, is, it is something that... It all goes though, together, doesn't it? it well, is. and it does. And, and so we have a prison overcrowding problem, and it's like, oh, he had sex with two-year-olds and took pictures of him. Kill him. Like, I, I just speak very plainly, right? Mm. Like, there's... Oh, you're we, saying that's your solution? Yes. Okay. It, quickly, right? With I mean, give them their appeals, give them their day in court. Okay, you did it. We're going to hang you. We're not going to try to find a vein. We're going to string you up in I the really street. I want to watch his face right and now. It's, it. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. I mean, if, if again, the and everyone knows I go, I have a Christian nationalist bent. Okay, so. Bye-bye, YouTube. The, yeah, bye-bye, gone. Gone again is, is the power of the sword is not born in vain, right? It, the God gives the state the civil magistrate, the power of the sword, and it's to punish evil and to reward good. That's what the Bible says. And one of the reasons that, that you have chaos in your home is because you don't use the rod of correction. That's the tool given to the, the, the jurisdiction of the home. But you use the rod of correction to, you know, train your children in the nurture and admission of the Lord. And when you don't do it, you, chaos abounds. And so in the civil sphere, if, if we're not punishing the way that we're supposed to punish, chaos is going to abound, right? And we've not done it. And it's like, okay, you know, I, I have I, my friend that actually like changed my mind on capital punishment was a guy who, who, when he was 16 years old, drugged these kids up to the mountains that he didn't like and, and, and double tapped them. Some two in the chest, one in the head, two in the chest, one in the head. And he got out after like 15 years in prison. And he says, the fact that they didn't hang me is the reason that we have a problem. Cause he, you know, is changed and doing well now. And he said, I could have changed. I could still go to heaven after they killed me. Right. Like there has to be a line and a level of justice in a society and a standard. And if it's not there, we're, we're behind the eight ball the whole way. And so I feel like, okay, we can talk about this, that, or the other, but if you're having sex with kids and like, you know, at that level, just anyway, just end it, just be done. You know, you, you raise a little bit of the issue relating to effective punishment and I'm going to make in a capital setting, but more broadly, is accountability occurs swiftly. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things on the capital side, and, and we saw this, I'll give you the, I think it was Tommy Arthur uh, was a name that many know because he had seven different execution or eight different execution dates and all were stayed at the last minute. But Tommy Arthur committed the offense when I was a junior in high school. And I'll go back, that would have been 1981. So, so, and then we executed him when I was 53. Now, 
there's nothing about that that creates a deterrent effect. Yeah. And so good thing that we were able to, and probably the first legislative victory I had as AG was adopting a sort of dual track appeal process in capital cases consistent with Texas so that you had your direct appeal where somebody could say, look, this evidence was entered improperly, I'm innocent, whatever that may be. Um, that's going along with what we call a Rule 32, which is where they argue that my lawyer was ineffective, they didn't provide me the evidence that otherwise I was required in discovery. And so where before this had to take place before this, these are now traveling on the same track. And although Alabama won't see the benefit of that until long after I'm AG, you know, we're not going to have some 30-year time frame for that to take place because, you know, and I've couched this all in the conversation of punishment and what it means to do it swiftly and appropriately, but we discount for a victim. What does it mean that they got to sit there and wait that entire period of time ultimately for what they know a judge has said should take place, where they know courts have validated what's going on as to when that should occur? And Again, it's part of, I won't get back on my mandatory supervised release question, but we lose sight of victims in this state. And I think that's sad um, because ultimately they're the ones that suffer the most. And yet they seemingly have the voice that's the least heard. It's why I'm, when I try murder cases, I sit down with a family and tell them up front, you're going to be extremely upset because this is very little about your loved one. It's all about the defendant. And you're going to feel like your loved one gets lost and please don't do that. But yet it's hard not to feel that way because they're the ones that are without the person uh, that was taken away from them. And yet seemingly the system itself is geared toward the interests of the defendant. So there's, I mean, this seems as you're talking, it's, it's more of like a grooming situation usually than like a kidnapping traumatic situation where there's so many close it makes me wonder there's the punishment side of it, which until we get to Brian's level, um, you know, what is your office doing? Because I have I have a 20 year old son, an 18 year old daughter, a 16 year old son and a 14 year old daughter. And what are you doing to educate those kids that are vulnerable? Like, because I feel like where you say a lot of the victims don't see it as you know, this crime, they, they're attached. You gotta be careful having the state do anything. I mean, well, right. Because but, you, you start having the state saying like, this is what your parents can and can't do. I mean, yeah, there's an obvious line sexually, but anyway, but it's yeah. like the things in the bathroom. I mean, I, I hear what you're saying, but yeah. at the same time, like, how do I convince, you know, we live in suburban North Shelby County. How do I convince them that this is really a problem and something that they should be work looking yeah. out for? It, you know, one thing that you say, so typically our victim is not going to be that person that stays in the home and graduates from high school. Typically they're going to be folks that have left home at an early age, runaways, people that have been in foster care. Yes, saying, but, but I see so many kids, like even at my kids' high school, that are in very vulnerable homes that don't have parents in the home that would be such easy targets. They're not what you think of. Right. Um. And those are the kids that I wonder, you know, is do they understand? Don't put your guard down. It's everywhere. It's on TikTok. It's on Snapchat. It is coming at you from your classroom now. And so there has to be some way, I, like even the things that they put in the bathrooms at the, and and again, here I am talking about uh, schools, but, but there's got to be some way to warn because my kids would probably be like, what do you, I mean, nobody's trafficking anybody in Oak Mountain. Well, yes, they are. 
I mean, 280 is getting a little dicey like some a, days. If you see something, say something campaign or something like that. I don't that. know. I just am curious like, yeah, if, you, if you all do anything on that side, if you're going into schools and talking about these things. Yeah, it's a great question. And to tell you, I know the answer. I don't. Um, I I'll put no, you together a program. Yeah, yeah. And, but I, I, will, I will actually be my takeaway from here and see what the team says. But clearly there's been an effort kind of around good touch, bad touch early on with right. kids around this question of sexual abuse. Um, but I don't know that there's ever been a coordinated effort to educate youth around the topic, but it's I, a difficult can, topic and yeah. I'm not sure that's the answer. You know, you, but I'm just, you've got, you've got cities that have designated themselves as human trafficking free zones. And some people may say, well, gosh, what does that really mean? Is it more symbolic? And maybe it is symbolic in a way, but at least it raises the issue for purposes of discussion um, but, you know, Brian also raises a point, and although, you know, government has its role, this also ought to be a conversation that takes place Absolutely. very transparently around the kitchen table, Absolutely. you know, but it, it is also one that um, is a little different than the situation I described earlier of a child that's been physically or sexually abused and reporting it, because typically these victims are far away from home when these crimes are occurring. So. Again, great question. I'll see if I can find an answer. Oh, I just thinking out loud here on this here podcast. That's what engineers do. That's right. <laughs> they they hypothesize and move forward. Now right. General Let's, Marshall's on the engineer kick. There you go. Got it's it. An inside joke around here, and yeah. now you're part of it. Okay. It began on the very first day. It did. It did. She said in a meeting. So we were no, trying to figure just, out. No, we got to tell the story. So we, we were meeting in the conference room trying to decide, you know, do we want to do this podcast? And so my chief of staff at the time and I were in there and Scott Beeson, Amy Beth Shaver and Allison and Scott Beeson didn't really know you was kind of familiar. So we, we brought them together because I had the anyway, there's a whole story, but we end up in the conference room and like we're talking about, you know, ourselves like, oh, introduce yourself, whatever. And she's like, I'm an engineer. And like three minutes later, she said she was an engineer again. <laughs> okay, my like, whole get point it, lady. was that I don't know anything about podcasting or media. I'm just like, I was actually trying to be humble in the moment. And now they're like, oh, Allison's an engineer. <laughs> I'm super humble. But I I mean, somewhere back a long time ago, there was a brain. Like I I can think. It's still there. It's, it's working. Well, let's, we've got about five more minutes. If you want to tackle the... The, the pistol brace, the AR brace situation. Let's tackle That's that, and then we'll jump topic. into some behind-the-scenes content. I know it's a hot topic. so you know, yeah. you know, random, but it's one where I've heard from law enforcement, I've heard from just people on the street that, you know, this is this is a unique creature in the fact that, I mean, some people call them pistol braces, some kind of shoulder braces, stability okay, braces. I mean, it's I, I like say a, stability braces. It's a um, thing. What, what, it's what a is thing. it? What, Brian, tell us the what it is. engineering coming yeah, in I'm here. I'm sorry. Okay. So it's a, it's a, it's a stability. It's basically when you're a stability a strap okay. that most folks use on uh, an AR pistol. I mean, it was a way of gaining, it was originally developed by uh, an individual that was wanting to help a friend of his that was a disabled military veteran be able to control the gun because uh, he only could use one arm. And it's become something that's been very popular and interesting. And, and it kind of takes us back a little to the discussion we have about the federal government and somewhat the arbitrary nature. But it's approved in 2012 as a way of being able to use it. It was, it was deemed. And the reason why it had to be approved is you've got the National Firearm Act that goes back 
to the thirties that was designed to get gangsters and robbers off the streets, you know, with the short barreled rifles that they would, you know, all the movies you've seen them. And the question was whether or not this made that pistol, a short barreled rifle that's subject to ATF regulation. And for years, ATF said, no, it's fine. And then president Biden gives a speech, a speech now and says, ATF needs to ban these from the the market. And then within two months later, ATF comes out with this new proposed rule with all these factors that basically is going to cause 99% of those that have these uh, pistol braces to have to apply for the stamp to get uh, on a registry or otherwise and have to be subject and to federal law. that surpasses legislation. And so that goes yeah, back to three-letter agencies creating regulation that was not passed through the legislature, and you have these agencies that are basically creating law. And it's absolutely creating law. And what's yeah. also interesting about this one is – creating law that's completely contrary to that agency's own interpretation for the last 12 years. And remember, this wasn't just an interpretation that existed through the Trump administration. This goes back to a Democratic administration where it was approved. And so you've had people that have invested. I mean, it's not like these are incredibly expensive, but yet they spent money. They have allowed for this to take place. And I spoke to a gun manufacturer I know just the other day, and I was like, tell me about what this rule means to you. And he said, I quit making AR pistols, not selling them anymore because – for the FFLs, there's an additional requirement that comes along here with them, what they have to accept and not accept. And he said, I can't create any more inventory because they're not going to be able to buy them. And so, look, this is part of the attack on the Second Amendment. It's just another vehicle to be used. But as we're kind of talking about that meeting that was taking place, you know, a um, hypothetical meeting about let's go after the gender issues, let's go after yeah. um, this Second Amendment is clearly one of those in gun control. And this is not um, a product that somehow or another has been problematic, you know, widespread out there in creating issues for for law enforcement. In fact, lots of law enforcement members I know have them. And so uh, it's just one of the opportunities we're given. And, you know, one of the things about this case, you know, I told you about my ERA case only had three states originally joined me. We had the brief for Florida where there's 22 states. Well, there's a caucus of us of 26 states out there. Uh, as Republican AGs, this had 25 people join the lawsuit that's pending in the state of North Dakota. And the only Who reason why didn't join? Well, the only reason it wasn't Texas filed their own. Oh, so, okay. So their excuse. We, we have 26 okay. total now that are engaged in this fight. And so, um, you know, I think we're going to be successful because it's it, to me it's abundantly clear that, that ATF exceeded their authority. But but at a minimum, one of the things that you examine in these cases is do the government act in an arbitrary and capricious manner? Right. Yeah. How much more arbitrary and capricious can you be to completely flip flop what has been the historic position Based when Congress never changed yeah. the law and the president through a speech said we need to do it? Yeah, crazy. And real quick, I want to ask you a question that goes on this, then we'll jump to our behind the scenes content. So the Glock switch conversation that's being had right now, I'm sure you're, you're I've heard it, but frankly, I don't know a lot about it. I don't, I don't either, but I want to get into the enforcement aspect of it because I think that's the real question is so there's a federal law against Glock switches now, but there's not state. So they're, they're trying to pursue the legislature to create a state, you know, a state law that restricts these things. So my question is if there's already a federal law restricting it. So for instance, there's a federal law that restricts felons from having firearms. So if a state trooper pulls over a felon and there's a pistol, sitting on the thing, that guy's going to jail. 
right? If like, he's a, if he, a convicted if he, felon in possession, he's yeah. He's a convicted felon, so he's going to jail. He's going to federal jail, and he's going to go face a mandatory minimum 60 months in the federal prison system for being a felon in possession of a firearm because there's a federal law restricting. The state of Alabama, I don't think, has laws restricting. So so it's the same thing. You have a federal law, not a state law, but but the, but the state troopers and municipal cops and everything else would still use that federal law. Right now, they're they're saying that there's a federal law restricting Glock switches, but not a state law. So they want to create a state law so that they can enforce it. And to me, it's like if there's already a federal law, I mean, I guess you'd have to turn them over to the ATF every time you found one or something. Yeah, but. and I think the question would be, even if it's a federal law, would there be any enforcement? And let me use Exhibit A right now in the world, which is there's still a federal law that says marijuana is a controlled yeah. substance. It's illegal. Yeah. But yet you see what's going on in the respective states. And so just by the fact there's a federal law doesn't mean it's going to get enforced. Yeah. And 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 I would say that we're not a uh, a Glock switch sanctuary state. Right. Either, right. You know, so. <laughs> right. But anyway, well, I think <clears throat> something to think about, I guess, for everybody uh, to, to ponder. Um, well, that'll wrap up today's show. I don't know what cool thing Scott says when he ends the show. It's not nearly <laughs> as cool as mine, obviously, or as good looking or as well spoken. Anyway, I'm rambling at this point. Um, so yeah, like how did, how does Scott end the show, Allison? He just says, thanks for joining us. See y'all later. See y'all next time. Rotat. That's what, like that? Rotat. Rotat. Yeah. All right. That's it. So there it is. We'll see you guys next time. But you need to go check out the behind-the-scenes content. So we've got a list of questions from around Alabama we're going to be hitting the Attorney General with. And so make sure you sign up as a member. Go there. And that is our way of saying thank you to our paid members.